And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out of Shittim two men to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, even Jericho. And they went and came into an Arlet's house named Rahab and lodged there. You're listening to the Drumbeat Forever After. It's a podcast about the Bronze Age in the Near East. I'm your host, Alex, and this is my guest. Uh, Kelton, less knowledgeable about history, but really enjoys uh, uh, voices. Yep. Big fan of sound waves. <laughs> I hate the vacuum of space, really. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my place. And we are reading from the Hebrew Bible, the book of Joshua, chapter 2. I don't have a religious angle here. The Bible just happens to be a widely known book about the ancient Near East, and the King James translation is intrinsically fun. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> At this point in the story, it's after Moses has come down from the mountain. The Israelites have already made the Ark of the Covenant, but they're not in the Promised Land yet. The book of Joshua is about their needlessly violent conquest of it. Joshua is the leader of the Israelites. He's currently camped east of the Jordan, and here is what he sends spies to survey the land, so they know exactly where to go first. House of Rahab, the harlot. The king of Jericho sent unto Rahab, saying, Bring forth the men that are come to thee, which are entered into thine house, for they be come to search out all the country. So at the time, Rahab is drawing stalks of flax on her roof. We'll talk about flax in today's episode. So she's hidden the spies under the flax on her roof, and she lies and tells the king's men that the spies have already left town. So in return, when they come out of fighting, she asks the spies to spare her and her family when they do end up sacking Jericho. So Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant. And the people came out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. We'll also visit Gilgal today. He was occupied during the late 9000s BCE. During this early period, we see lots of foraged grains and cultivated figs there. While they're camped at Gilgal, the Israelites circumcised the current generation with flint knives. Oh, fine. God. <laughs> Damn. That, I don't trust any napper to make yes. a knife that good. Also, like right before you sack Jericho, like, all right, boys, what are we, what are we going to do? Like, what are we, what's our pre-war ritual? Like, <laughs> exactly. let's cut some dicks. <laughs> why, <laughs> why are you all walking so slowly and unevenly? <laughs> Let us waddle into battle. Ow, ow, ow. Yeah. <laughs> so in return, and the Lord said unto Joshua, This day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you. Wherefore, the name of the place is called Gilgal unto this day. So a footnote from BibleGateway.com says that, quote, <laughs> It's actually a good resource. Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew word for roll, end quote. So here we have an etiology that is a narrative origin for a place name that existed when the text was written. Also notable that the circumcisions happen at Gibeath Hararoloth, which is Hebrew for Hill of Foreskins. That's... Mm. <laughs> Nothing. Mm. So after this, they celebrate Passover. The narrative specifies that this is the last day that they receive manna from heaven. So yeah, well, they're in the desert. They don't have any like food or way to get food. Oh, it's like their their sustenance. Yeah. So God yeah. rains down like yeah food from heaven. I mean, he kind of already did that with the plague with the frogs. You know? Exactly. That was, you know, those calories. <laughs> Getting real tired of spit roasted frogs <laughs> every damn day. <laughs> I'm like covered in warts. <laughs> And they did eat of the old corn of the land on the morrow after the Passover, unleavened cakes and parched corn in the selfsame day. And the manna ceased on the morrow. After they had eaten of the old corn of the land, neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Yeah, so Canaan is the same as Palestine or the promised land. It's essentially the land west of the Jordan that they are about to invade. And, you know, the fact that they're about to eat the grain from the fields of Canaan is kind of the culmination of Moses' covenant. You know, this is when they get the land that's promised, etc. The, the promised land is just such a worse phrase when there are already people on the land. That's funny how that works. Yeah, that's such a, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. 
And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? And he said, Nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. So the siege of Jericho now begins. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. And ye shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go round about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day ye shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when ye hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up, every man straight before him. One of my favorite things about reading uh, Bible verses and Mystery Myths is like, all right, and they have the trumpets, and mm. then they're going to use the trumpets, but then also they're going to use the trumpets. You right, know, right, right. What do they do with the trumpets? Oh, they blow the trumpets. <laughs> Holy shit, really? Yeah, they blow the trumpets. <laughs> Are they going to do anything else with the trumpets? Well, that's all they've done so far. <laughs> <laughs> and it came to pass at the seventh time, when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord hath given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. But all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron, they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So during the pre-pottery Neolithic, where we are today, obviously there was no metal, but when it comes to looking at later periods, this is one of the reasons why metal is so rare in archeological sites. So essentially God has ordered the Israelites to destroy everything. That's <laughs> hardcore. And to burn all the buildings down and everything. This would be ideal conditions for archeological preservation, including carbon dating, because essentially all of everyone's stuff would be right where they left it as they fled through their lives. Uh, that makes sense. Yeah. And then when you burn down a building, the carbonized wood is able to be carbon dated. Ah, okay. But it's totally fine. And it doesn't violate God's order to just take their metal stuff, either to reuse the objects or to melt them down and make new metal objects. Guys, I just spoke with God, and he said taking their most valuable possessions is cool. Like, yeah. I, 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 like he made a really big point to say gold, silver, I, I, all that stuff, <laughs> fair game. Right. Yeah, so often metal objects aren't buried in graves or abandoned. So because they're among your most valuable items, you're going to take them with you wherever you go and melt them down into something new when you can't use it anymore. So we don't see a lot of metal stuff lying around in archaeology. Gotcha, because it either gets stolen or taken. So in Mesopotamia, if you were feeling pious, you could use some of that metal to make a statue of a god. If you have some gold, you could commission a new gold face for the statue of the god in the temple or whatever. Unless your religion happens to have a specific rule against making idols, which most Near Eastern religions don't. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets. And it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout, that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city every man straight before him, and they took the city. And they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass, with the edge of the sword. 
So the bad news is that the book of Joshua is a narrative of total genocide. So in the narrative, in order to occupy the land that God promised them, they have to murder every single human being and destroy all of their livestock and property, which are also ritually impure. Wow. Yeah. That's... Non-holy stuff can't exist in the Holy Land, so it's all gotta go. Holy shit. Yeah. That's really heavy. But the good news is that there's no archaeological evidence of this type of violence. There were several cities in Palestine that were destroyed at the end of the Bronze Age, but there's not a lot of overlap with the list of cities destroyed in Joshua and the list of cities destroyed in the archaeological record. Mm. Either way, we don't see any massive population replacement. So it probably wasn't a genocide of this severe nature. Right. So, I mean, if anything, it may have been a gradual migration over a long period of time or just cultural change within a region without much migration or whatever. But for the purpose of the narrative, they had to say, it's like, no, 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 all of us are descended from Moses and those guys. None of us are descended from the native Canaanites. Even though, realistically and genetically and so on, we know that they were all descended from the Canaanites. Yeah, but I mean, the Bible really hates the Canaanites. Yeah. Like, they really hate the Canaanites. Yep. So a few of the cities mentioned in Joshua were also destroyed at the end of the Late Bronze Age, including Megiddo, Lachish, Hatzor, and Bethel. All have archaeological destruction layers at the end of the Late Bronze Age and are mentioned as having been destroyed by Joshua. So maybe the historical narrative of urban collapse around 1200 BCE was incorporated into the later Joshua tradition. And the young men that were spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and her mother and her brethren and all that she had. And they brought out all her kindred and left them without the camp of Israel. And they burnt the city with fire and all that was therein, only the silver and the gold and the vessels of brass and of iron, they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. And Joshua adjured them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord that riseth up and buildeth this city Jericho. He shall lay the foundation thereof in his firstborn, and in his youngest son shall he set up the gates of it. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was noised throughout all the country. So we're going to look at a different section of the Bible dealing with the area around Jericho when we come back. But first, let's look at Palestine in the pre-pottery Neolithic era. So back in episode one, we covered the region of Syro-Palestine down to about 9600 BCE. And then we spent two episodes on the northern part of the Fertile Crescent. So today we're going to focus on the western part of the Fertile Crescent, otherwise known as Palestine, also known as Canaan or the southern Levant. Lots of maps call this whole area Israel. So during the pre-pottery Neolithic A, between about 9600 and 8500 BCE, we see pre-domestication cultivation practices across the entire Fertile Crescent. In Palestine, wild barley seems to have been preferentially exploited. So they had a mixed economy during this period. We don't see any evidence of domestic crops until the very end of the PPNA. The majority of plants were still gathered from the wild, and they were still dependent on hunting. So in the north, near the Euphrates, we see gazelle, wild ass, and cattle. In the south, near Jordan, we see gazelle, a few fallow deer, wild cattle, and boar, along with fox bones, which they may or may not have eaten. And everywhere, we see evidence they were eating ducks, tortoises, and lizards. So this is a broad-spectrum subsistence strategy. In other words, they're reliant on several strategies in several ecosystems, you know, gathering different types of plants and hunting different types of animals. All in all, even if they're cultivating more grain than they were before, it is a similar kind of strategy to what they were doing in the late Natufian period. So the site of Jerf el-Ahmar in northern Syria has the only evidence in this region for domestic cereal cultivation during the pre-pottery Neolithic A, so obviously, new traits in these cultivated grains would first show up as random genetic mutations. For example, a more flexible rachis, which later farmers will select for, shows up in every one in two million wild plants, which makes it rare but not impossible to find, especially since a village of a few dozen people would deal with millions of individual plants over the course of their life. You know, and as people are trying out different processing techniques, they would get better at threshing, which means they would be more likely to find plants that thresh well. 
For example, grain that stays attached to the stem until you manually press the stem to separate them. In Sierra Palestine, cultivated wild grasses date back to the Paleolithic. In general, people eat whatever grass seeds are nearby, and over time, as we've been saying, we see increasingly deliberate cultivation of wheat and barley and so on. This is the beginning of cereal production, but not yet agriculture. So at the site of Gilgal in the West Bank, archaeologists found one cache of three kilograms of wild oats and eight kilograms of barley seeds in one place. That's a total of 24 pounds of food. If it was gathered from the wild, this could be gathered by two to three people in about four hours, just a short walk to the west. It might have also been cultivated in some capacity. So better access to green allowed population to grow. In Palestine and Jordan, the average village during the pre-pottery Neolithic is three to eight times bigger than villages were during the Natufian period. The largest pre-pottery Neolithic villages are up to 60 times bigger than the largest Natufian villages. And of course, more people need access to more food. There's kind of a feedback loop. Population grows in conjunction with new production techniques. It helps that there is a new warmer and wetter climate. So generally, people live in round or oval houses, sometimes with two rooms. These houses have stone foundations and walls made of mud bricks or wattle and daub. They also use wood or reed. The floors were generally made of mud and sometimes covered with reed mats. Inside, we see domestic hearths, which were small and oval, and we see heated rocks that were used for cooking. So essentially, before you have pottery that you can put directly over the fire, you might have a stone bowl, and if you want to heat up the liquid in the bowl, probably what you're going to have to do is heat up a rock in the fire and then put that hot rock inside the bowl. This leads to a lot of cracked rocks, which we find in these houses. We have traces of domestic activity in these spaces between houses. So in other words, daily household tasks were done outside in the spaces between physical homes. It may be that people in separate houses were considered part of the same family unit instead of separate families living in separate buildings. We also see some storage facilities, either made of stone or mud brick. It's unclear what they were storing at this point. It's not unlikely that some of it was foraged or cultivated grain. So that was the pre-pottery Neolithic A. So now let's focus on the pre-pottery Neolithic B. So we're looking at the period between about 8500 and 7000 BCE. Obviously, this is when farming and herding spreads throughout the Fertile Crescent, the area where it rains enough to farm without irrigation. The pre-pottery Neolithic B coincided with a climate optimum. So after the Younger Dryas, the Indian Ocean monsoon reached farther north, leading to especially good conditions for large seeded grasses like einkorn, emmer, and barley. Around 8500 BCE, we see the first morphologically domestic cereal. So they seem to have been artificially selecting for bigger seeds. This would have had to come at the end of a long process of trial and error, and there might have been earlier experiments that are invisible to archaeology. Around the same time, we have evidence of weeds that thrive in tilled soil. I mentioned earlier that einkorn might have been a weed in emmerfields, and there are other weeds that grow much better in soil that's been disturbed by humans for growing grain than they do in wild soil. In Sierra Palestine, 30% of cereal chaff appears to come from domestic plants by the mid-8000s BCE, which means that a majority of the grain they're eating still comes from cultivated wild strains. But along the Euphrates, the pre-pottery Neolithic A era reliance on cereals seems to have been replaced with legumes, like lentils, peas, grass peas, and vetch. Remember, the vast majority of food that people would have foraged would be plants other than cereals, and legumes are more nutritious. So we don't see a linear process of people abandoning a wide variety of plants for only cereals. You know, different people took the idea of domestication in different directions at first. In West Iran, for example, we see small-seeded legumes, goat grass, club brush, and pistachio, along with other fruits and nuts. But in both Western Iran and along the Euphrates, domestic grain made up less than 10% of all grain until after about 8000 BCE. In a 2016 paper by Amaya Aranz Otaegi and colleagues, they define agriculture as, quote, a system based on the production and consumption of and high reliance on domesticated plants, end quote. And domestic types don't outnumber wild types until the early 7000s BCE. In northwestern Syria, we see domesticated free threshing or naked wheat by the mid-7000s. 
This is where the brittle gloom or seed coat breaks off, revealing the seed, meaning you don't have to process the individual grains to remove the seed coat. It's very possible that all these various strains of early cultivated and domestic grains interbred with each other. You know, people are migrating and trading and marrying and so on. And they probably brought seeds with them. And weed seeds might have traveled along with crop seeds. So I mentioned einkorn and emmer. I also mentioned in the previous episode that vetch might have been a weed in lentil fields. By the late 7,000s BCE, we see the first true agricultural societies in the Near East, where domestic products provide the majority of sustenance. And agricultural work makes up a majority of productive labor. Also during the 7,000s, goats start to replace wild gazelles in the faunal assemblage. In other words, we see more goat skeletons than gazelle skeletons. So these are probably managed herds of goats on the path to domestication. By the end of the 7,000s, we see intensively managed herds of sheep and goats. And because new areas are opened up to food production, as people are creating their own environments, we see a population explosion. Sites get more dense, buildings get bigger and more complex. We see the first two-story houses, as well as plastered floors and lots of storage rooms. Several towns grow to over 10 hectares. And essentially, at the end of the pre-pottery Neolithic B, this is when we get the first Neolithic megasites. So during this period, most burials are single with no grave goods. Only adults get their skulls removed, not children, which may indicate that children were not considered full members of the community, or at the very least, they were not eligible for the kind of ancestor cult that some people have hypothesized these skulls are being used for. We also see human figurines made from limestone and sometimes fired clay, which is notable because pottery has not been invented yet in this region, but clearly they seem to have understood the concept of firing clay. Female figurines are common, either kneeling or sitting. This kneeling position may be related to grinding grain, and it may indicate a new and separate social role for women during this period, whereas we saw no evidence of separate gender roles during the Nantufian period. So the pre-pottery Neolithic B phenomenon was centered on the dry farming region, the Fertile Crescent, but a similar material culture has also been found in drier areas, for example, in the Sinai Peninsula and the central Syrian desert, as well as north-central Saudi Arabia, all of which would be connected to nearby agricultural areas, but it wouldn't rain enough in these areas for dry farming. So in these dry regions, people would settle along wadis, or seasonal stream beds, which are dry for part of the year. A wide floodplain would provide good grazing land in the summer for wild game and later herds. And when it dries up, you can take your stuff and go elsewhere. We see what may be traces of early irrigation at the site of Ibn al-Ghazi in eastern Jordan, in the middle of the desert, far outside the Fertile Crescent. So this would be a way to control scarce water by digging channels towards your settlement. So early in the pre-pottery Neolithic B, at the site of Duwela and Kilwa in Jordan, we see simple outline drawings of animals carved on basalt boulders, which probably indicate the central importance of wild herds to the people that carved these. The act of making this rock art may have been a kind of sympathetic magic to help hunting. In other words, you depict herds of animals, and by doing so, you magically create the conditions that allow for herds of animals you can hunt. We also see depictions of spears and atl-atls, or spear throwers. And one picture depicts humans holding hands. In the later pre-pottery Neolithic B, instead of outlines, the interior of these rock art figures is chiseled to create a spotted texture. The most common designs we see during this later period are gazelle and ibex, and cattle and wild bulls are less common. Jebba Oasis in northern Saudi Arabia would have been an inland lake during the pre-pottery Neolithic. Rock art depicts a throwing stick, which might have been used for hunting, as well as spears and bows and arrows, and depictions of hunting with packs of hunting dogs. One of these rock art depictions from Kilwa shows a couple having sex. The woman has six toes and maybe six fingers, which is notable because plaster statues at Ein Gazal and Jericho also had six toes. In real life, this is a rare genetic anomaly, so it's unclear if this depicted real people. It might have also had a symbolic meaning. So we see over 700 desert kites in the Near East. These are stone structures built in the desert or the grasslands to trap wild animals. They're generally shaped like a V or a funnel, and they range from 10 to 200 meters long. 
And essentially, this is a hunting strategy. So the wide open end of the V generally faces areas where wild herds graze or drink water. So people would chase animals into the wide opening, sometimes several at a time. Because animals couldn't jump over the walls, they would run towards the narrow end so that hunters could corner and kill them. The animals found at these sites are mostly gazelles, specifically the Mesopotamian gazelle, which runs instead of jumping. So the wall doesn't have to be that high. We could also use these desert kites to hunt the wild ass, the oryx, and the ostrich. Sometimes there are enclosures built inside the open end of the kite where hunters can hide from their prey. So essentially, you chase the gazelle into the kite. It doesn't know that there are people hiding inside the kite. And then once it is inside the structure, people leap out from behind walls, and there are more hunters to help you corner this gazelle. We see about 70 kites depicted in rock art from around the same time that the kites themselves were built. But depictions in rock art are more varied. So some of these depictions show, for example, two figures trapping a large animal in a kite. One figure subduing three animals. Two of them look like a person riding on an animal's back. One of them has a dog. It's unclear whether these represent hunters or mythological scenes, but they seem to have been tied in with this hunting practice. So in these drier desert regions, we also see evidence of long-distance trade that connected Syria, Palestine, and Arabia. The main material traded was flint, but we also see alabaster, jadeite, and turquoise, as well as obsidian from as far away as Lake Van in eastern Turkey, and also white plaster dishes. Dishes made of plaster are called whiteware. More on that later. We also see green daba marble used for beads. These apparently come from Jordan, and we find them spread across a wide region. At the site of Nahal Hemar on the Dead Sea, we see wooden beads painted green, which may be an imitation of this kind of green marble. We see seashells, some from the Mediterranean Sea, some from the Red Sea. Cowries from the Red Sea and bittersweet clams are the most common. The trade in seashells might have something to do with the sea level rise. So between about 20,000 and 4,000 BCE, a huge stretch of the coast was covered by ocean. As glaciers melted, the sea level rose everywhere. This stretch of coast was 500 kilometers long and between 5 and 20 kilometers wide. So some Neolithic villages in Palestine, like Atlit Yam, are now underwater. There were almost certainly also perishable goods traded along the same trade routes. You know, animal skins, linen textiles, baskets, and so on. These would be very useful to the people using them, but invisible to the archaeological record. And these trade routes are going to be the basis of later interaction, you know, for exchange, colonization, war, intermigration, and so on. You know, the paths in and out of the mountains don't really change. And there are only so many sources of obsidian, for example. So to look at labor and gender, both men and women used their arms equally. They did similar types of work to each other. People kept hunting, gathering, processing food, and making tools, although they seem to have shifted from pounding grain to grinding it. Obviously, the most important type of new labor is agricultural labor. So that involves, among other things, clearing land, tilling soil, planting, weeding, watering, harvesting, threshing, winnowing, and grinding, all of which put different strains on the human body. Pretty much every day, someone in the household would have had to grind grain, and skeletal evidence, as we'll talk about, shows that this was mostly a job for women and girls. We see new types of labor, some of which got more intensive, like gathering and processing cereals and construction projects. People are transporting limestone blocks to make into lime plaster. People are also starting to build with mud bricks, which are harvested from the ground when wet and then dried in the sun. These buildings are often built on limestone foundations. Another development during this period is that people are cutting down trees more often. They have new types of axes that were not used during the Natufian period. So people are probably using these large logs for construction and maybe for boats. And of course, they would use smaller chunks of wood for fences and firewood and oars and so on. And they may already be clearing forest land for cereal cultivation. I mentioned earlier evidence of increased burning during this period, which would clear up new land for farming. Notably, at the beginning of the Neolithic, women begin to exhibit more signs of manual labor than men, which shows that women might have been more involved in food production than men. This is similar to other societies that adopted agriculture, including the Mississippian indigenous cultures in what is now the southeastern U.S. In general, we see a much wider range of activities during the Neolithic. 
The trend over the entire Neolithic is towards more intensive labor. The introduction of agriculture seems to have introduced greater stress to both sexes, but according to skeletal evidence, women seem to have worked harder. So there's a 1994 article by Thea Mollison called The Eloquent Bones of Abu Huraira. This is an early Neolithic site in northern Syria on the Euphrates. We talked about Abu Huraira during the Natufian period back in episode one. Well, it was reoccupied starting around 8600 BCE, so around the very beginning of the pre-pottery Neolithic B. For the most part, today we'll be looking at the second half of the 8000s BCE. Both men and women at Abu Huraira show evidence of muscular arms and legs, which shows that everyone was involved in strenuous labor. Again, hoeing, sowing, watering, weeding, reaping, threshing, winnowing, grinding, and so on. We see skeletal evidence of strain during life, so strong front jaws and unevenly worn teeth might be from chewing tough foods. We see collapsed vertebrae from carrying heavy loads on their necks, so the hook-shaped parts of the neck vertebrae are bigger. So apparently what happened is starting during childhood, people would carry heavy loads on their head, maybe water. Obviously, intensive agriculture needs more water, and if you can't get it from nature, you have to carry it there yourself. Obviously, grinding grain is a central part of making both bread and beer. So people would store whole grains for a long shelf life and then grind them every day in order to cook. They would grind this grain on a saddle corn, which is a large stone for grinding flour. It gets an indentation in the middle from continuous grinding, hence the name. And again, someone has to grind grain into flour every day. So you have to kneel to use the saddle corn. You hold the stone in both hands and push forward and pull back. This position is depicted in later Egyptian art. Over time, this puts a lot of strain on your body. It strains your arms, your back, and your toes. And we see that this kind of strain overwhelmingly affected women. So you have to use your arms. You know, you're using your deltoid muscles in your shoulder to push forward and your biceps to pull back. This is why we see an equal strain on both arms in women during this period. It also puts an enormous strain on your back. You know, you're exerting force by bending forward and back for hours at a time, which of course is going to mess up your hips and your back. So we see a lot of disc damage and crushing on the lowest thoracic vertebrae. Most striking, lots of women had arthritic big toes. So women might have knelt with their big toes flat on the ground. And if you spend a lot of time in this position, especially if you're moving around a lot, you're going to end up with your first metatarsal joints enlarged and often injured. Over time, this would grind down the cartilage, leading to bone rubbing against bone, and in some cases of osteoarthritis. So essentially, skeletal evidence shows us that women were engaged in grueling labor pretty much every day for most of their life, starting during their adolescence. And it appears that women and girls did the vast majority of grinding grain to bread and beer and so on. Unlike elsewhere during this period at Abu Huraira, we don't see many cavities, which may be because flour was not refined or cooked enough to house the bacteria that caused tooth decay. Those bacteria prefer processed grains, just like we do, because they live in our mouths and eat when we eat. And it's easier to cook grains in pottery, which will be invented later, of course. We know from later periods at Abu Huraira that they were weaving mats. We have impressions of these woven mats in plaster. So we know that they could weave when the site was abandoned around 5800 BCE. Another craft related to weaving is basket making. Obviously, organic materials decay, so we don't have much direct evidence of baskets. But in order to weave baskets, you need to be able to manipulate three strands, you know, three fibers at the same time. So modern women from the Paiute Nation in the American Southwest tend to hold one of these fibers with their front teeth while they manipulate the other two with their hands. Over time, this wears down their front teeth and makes their front jaw more muscular. This is the same pattern that we see at Abu Huraira. It's not widespread. So there's a specific group of people who appear to be mostly women who seem to have specialized in basket weaving because they have the same patterns of wear on the front teeth and the same kind of stronger jaws. So this may be an early form of labor specialization. A particular group of women in the village would be more skilled at weaving and would do most of the basket weaving. So Thea Mollison writes, quote, These are the repetitive stress injuries of the Neolithic. There is no need to assume that this division of roles implies any inequality between the sexes or between roles. That comes later, end quote. 
So on the whole, Abu Huraira appears to have been an egalitarian society. Clearly defined roles don't prove some kind of status hierarchy, and women's central role in food production probably carried some kind of religious authority with it, not to mention their central role in reproduction, which of course is symbolically important in pretty much every human society. But we do have some evidence of different social roles. Women were more likely to be buried under the floors of their houses, whereas men were more likely to be buried in burial pits outside. This might reflect a spatial division of social roles. So let's look at some crops that were cultivated and or domesticated in early Neolithic Palestine. So starting with figs. Ficus is the Latin word for fig. It's the name for hundreds of species of wild fruit trees, both tropical and subtropical, across the Eastern Hemisphere. When we talk about figs, we mean the common fig, which is the wild ancestor of the domestic fig. Wild figs are native to the Palestinian coast. At the pre-pottery Neolithic A village of Gilgal in the West Bank, figs were widely cultivated in the late 9000s BCE, millennia before comparable fruit trees like grapes, olives, and dates. So figs were the most common fruit from this period. It is super easy to plant new trees. As we'll see, you could just cut off a branch and plant it in the ground, leading to a new fig tree. So in the wild, each fig tree grows two types of flowers that turn into two different types of fruit. So the female flowers turn into the edible seed fruit that people and animals like to eat. The other flower has both male and female parts, and it turns into an inedible fruit. So like I said, the female flower turns into a regular edible fig that you can eat. This is the female fruit, it has seeds, and there are no wasps that live in the figs that people eat. But like I said, these fig trees grow a second type of fruit. This kind of fruit is hermaphroditic with both male and female flowers. It's called a caprifig, and it's inedible. And this is the fruit that wasps lay eggs in. So in the wild, fig trees have a symbiotic relationship with the fig wasp, and each needs the other to reproduce. So in the summer and autumn, wasps lay eggs in hollow caprifigs, again, the one that you don't eat, and their larvae feed on the fleshy plant matter inside. In the spring, male flowers on the caprifig produce pollen, and wasps hatch from those caprifigs, and the wasp flies to a new fig tree covered in the pollen from the inedible fruit that it just came out of in order to lay eggs. And this is how the wasp will pollinate the new tree with the pollen from the tree that it came from. The ovipositor of the wasp, that is the part of the body that lays its eggs, is long enough to lay eggs in male flowers, but not long enough to lay eggs in female flowers. But it's still enough to pollinate the female flowers, even if it can't successfully lay eggs in it. Which is, again, why we don't see wasp eggs in edible fruit, and why when you eat figs, you are not eating wasp eggs. That is how figs reproduce in the wild. It does produce some edible fruit, but it also involves a lot of wasps, which are not ideal. So there is a second kind of fig tree that only produces edible fruit, and it's capable of parthenocarpic reproduction. In other words, it's capable of reproducing without either pollination or fertilization. This parthenocarpy is caused by two different recessive traits. With these parthenocarpic trees, these female figs stay attached to the tree. They keep growing instead of dropping to the ground, so they become softer, sweeter, and more edible. This is not necessarily the result of human breeding. Genes can combine this way on their own, but they can't reproduce with other trees, so there's no cross-pollination. And because of this, they would be a genetic dead end without humans to replant their branches. So like domesticated crops, parthenocarpic figs are unable to reproduce naturally. So in order to reproduce, they need humans to continuously replant them. So we don't have proof that the pre-pottery Neolithic A site of Gilgal domesticated fig trees, but we do see that figs at Gilgal were dried without deformation, so they were probably picked and dried intentionally instead of falling off the branch and drying on the ground. And we don't see any evidence of interactions with wasps. These figs could not have reproduced without humans, so we see evidence for fig cultivation by about 9500 BCE, which like I said is not proof of domestication. These genetic changes could have happened naturally and merely been replicated by humans instead of being intentionally selected for. But either way, at Gilgal, dried figs were stored with other gathered wild plants, like barley, oats, and acorns, because during the pre-powdery Neolithic A, they are still a mostly foraging society. 
So like other plants, the gradual domestication of figs happened alongside the gradual abandonment of foraging practices and the gradual adoption of agriculture. Moving to barley. Wild barley is common across southwestern Asia. It was widely harvested and cultivated before the Neolithic, and it appears alongside emmer and einkorn at pre-pottery Neolithic A sites, including in the Karajada region, where apparently emmer and einkorn were domesticated. It might have originally spread as a weed in fields of other crops. Wild barley is still a common weed in fields in modern Kurdistan, in the northern Fertile Crescent. And there's genetic evidence that barley was domesticated in Palestine, in the upper Jordan Valley, around 7000 BCE, but domestic and wild types would be fully interfertile. So just because of wind blowing around wild seeds, there would be lots of interbreeding. Barley can survive in a wider range of conditions than wheat can. It can live in drier and warmer environments with poorer soils, and it has higher tolerance for salt in the soil. So like the Jordan Valley, we will see that southern Mesopotamia, the Tigris-Euphrates alluvial plain, is dry and warm with increasingly salty soil as salt builds up in irrigation canals, which will make barley a perfect candidate for the staple crop of Sumerian city-states. So barley will be the foundation of urban society in Western Eurasia. It will provide the majority of calories for the first societies recorded in history, but it is always viewed as inferior to wheat. Barley rations will be the most basic rations starting in the mid-3000s BCE, and people higher up in the institutional hierarchy will receive rations of emmer alongside their barley. Now, like I said, barley will later be the staple crop of Sumerian culture and the entire basis of the record-keeping system in a very real way. Writing and record-keeping and bureaucracy and so on were invented to facilitate the collection and measuring and disbursement of barley. And of course, in addition to writing, that will lead to the creation of mathematics and money and the state and so on. The last plant we're going to look at is flax. Pale flax, the wild ancestor of domestic flax, was one of several plants used for fibers before the Neolithic. It grows best in wet areas, like moist grassy areas with clay soils, near springs, and in marshy lands. So because of this, as a crop, flax will require a lot of water. Around 30,000 BCE, we see twisted and dyed flax fibers in a cave in the country of Georgia. From genetic evidence, we see apparently two varieties of domestic flax. One is specialized for fibers, textile production, and the other is specialized for oil to make flaxseed or linseed oil. It's the oldest crop known for both uses. So essentially, you're going to want to harvest the tall stems of flax before the seed matures, then dry them, then wet them, which involves immersing them in water. The pectin between the fibers will decompose, leaving the fibers themselves. Then you dry the stems, giving you fibers about 4 centimeters or 1.5 inches long. Then you separate the fibers by pounding and then comb them, and then you can use a spindle to spin them into thread. So by the mid-8000s BCE, flax seeds are common in pre-pottery Neolithic B villages. They're still morphologically wild, but they're the main source of fibers, so no wool yet. Around 7000 BCE, at Nahal Hemar in Palestine, near the Dead Sea, we see twined fiber, that is, two threads spun together. So of course, with domestication, farmers can select for different traits, like larger seeds. Later on, in southern Mesopotamia, we'll see that irrigated fields are perfect growing conditions for flax, and flax will be a major textile export. Around 2400 BCE, the household of the Queen of Lagash will have a dedicated staff of linen workers. If you haven't read... Weavers, Scribes, and Kings by Amanda Podana, you should. So we're going to finish up by looking at the site of Jericho. So Jericho was a village on the west bank of the Jordan River. It was seven kilometers north of the Dead Sea, near King Herod's palace. And the Neolithic village was founded on the bed of a lake that receded around 11,000 BCE. So Jericho's most important geological feature is a freshwater spring that supplies between 4,000 and 5,000 liters of water per minute. The name Jericho comes from Yarich, who is a Canaanite moon god, and the city god of Jericho until the Iron Age when, of course, the city god of Jericho became God from the Bible. Jericho is at the foot of Jebel Kuruntul, which in Christian tradition is the Mount of Temptation, where Satan tempted Jesus in the desert. Medieval crusaders called this the 40-day mountain, 
named after the 40 days that Jesus spent in the desert. So in Latin, they called it Mons Quarantana, which has the same etymology as quarantine for a 40-day period. And the Arabic name Jebel Kuruntul comes from the Latin name. For our purposes, we'll be looking at the village, which was founded during the Natufian period and then occupied throughout the early Neolithic. So in the 50s, Jericho was excavated by Kathleen Kenyon. She came up with the pre-pottery Neolithic A and B division, specifically for the site of Jericho. And this is the reason why chronology at Jericho is uniquely messed up, because she reported a set of radiocarbon dates in a 1981 paper. But because this was before modern calibration, the radiocarbon dates were later than they should have been. Because Kathleen Kenyon came up with the pre-pottery Neolithic A and B distinction based on these uncalibrated dates, these two periods apply everywhere but Jericho. So a 2012 paper by Laura Alfonsi and colleagues calibrated these old dates. That is, they ran them through a mathematical formula to align them better with what we know the real dates were. Don't ask me how we know that now. I, I don't know. But they found that, quote, the calibrated ages were inconsistent with the archaeological stratigraphy, being affected by large uncertainties in values and by doubtful sampling context, end quote. In other words, radiocarbon dates are broken for Jericho specifically. And for this reason, most literature on Jericho uses uncalibrated dates. So even in more recent papers, when you look at dates given in a paper about Jericho, those dates will not correspond to the dates for the rest of Syro-Palestine, which is why the section doesn't have exact numbers. So in the mid-8000s or so, we see sheep outside their natural habitat at Jericho, which is a sign of human-managed herds. Over time, these sheep skeletons get smaller, which tends to happen with domestic populations over a long period of time. And we see truly domestic herds of sheep by the 7000s BCE, but they continue to hunt wild animals. Like the rest of the region, gazelle is the most common. We see a fair number of foxes, as well as deer, boar, and cattle. I mentioned figs during the pre-pottery Neolithic A. This is their wild habitat, and like I said at Gilgal, they may be cultivated during the pre-pottery Neolithic A. And lentils appear at Jericho in the late 8000s. The seeds of these lentils are not much bigger than the wild form. Around 8000 BCE, we see the first peas and the first flax at Jericho. In the mid-7000s, we see chickpea appear at Jericho, outside its wild range, which again probably indicates that it's a domestic crop. We have one building at Jericho called the Stone Age Shrine. This is a large building, almost symmetrical, with a finely plastered lime floor. It was built in the middle PPNB, so the early to mid-7000s BCE. Nearby, we see two pits, each containing a group of clay statues, maybe some kind of triad. It's notable that skulls also tend to be buried in sets of three. We also see a terracotta model of a building either a house or a temple. Either way, it's three stories, which is unusual and possibly unwise given the earthquakes that the region was prone to. Just east of the shrine, we see juxtaposed cells, maybe for institutional storage, or maybe they're pens for sheep and goats. East of that, we have a large house and a plastered floor, which was damaged in an earthquake. We have several burials in this house. One guy apparently died by getting his neck twisted. He was buried with a big slab on top of him. He may have been a sacrificial victim, you know, buried in a very ritually specific way. So continuing our theme of head cults, we see plastered skulls at Jericho, which first appear in the PPNA. These are probably connected to ancestor worship somehow. As of 2017, we have 45 decorated skulls from pre-pottery Neolithic Jericho. Like most of the ancient Near East, when someone dies, you bury them. And at Jericho, as elsewhere, you tend to bury them under the dirt floor of your house. But then, after that, you dig up the body, usually remove the lower jaw, and then fill the skull with plaster and cover the outside with plaster, either clayish lime or gypsum plaster. In a 2013 paper, Denise Schmant-Besserat writes, quote, because the mandible was removed, the chin was modeled over the upper teeth, which made the face squat and chubby, end quote. So to decorate this plaster skull, you would smear the face with plaster and cover it with a pink slip. The back half of the skull seems to have been left bare, maybe because they covered it with some kind of hair. One statue had a mustache. So these heads might be intended to represent specific people instead of an ideal type or a deity or something like that. The plaster skull's eyes tend to be some kind of seashell. At Jericho, we see bivalve shells. 
sometimes broken in half before they were inlaid in order to make a vertical cat-style pupil. So one of these skulls belonged to a man in his 40s. His teeth were broken and badly decayed, and he seemed to have painful abscesses in his mouth. He broke his nose at one point, but it healed during his life, and his head was bound as an infant to achieve a particular shape. We will see more cranial modification when we get to Western Iran. So during the pre-Pottery Neolithic A, we have more skulls from women and children than later on. This may preserve the memory of people who died untimely deaths. Obviously, women and children were more likely to die than adult men. In the pre-Pottery Neolithic B, male skulls become more common. So we may be looking at a tradition of human sacrifice. So one burial has several children and cultivated grains at an altar. This may have been a practice, you know, sacrificing children in order to ensure a good harvest. You'll see a similar practice much later in the Canaanite and Phoenician practice of child sacrifice. And again, this is probably part of a regional head cult. I mentioned all of the head stuff at Gebekli Tepe. We have a statue head at Navali Chori, and we have similar plaster skulls elsewhere in Palestine. If you want to include the cranial modification in Western Iran, that is also a special focus on the head. So eventually, after these skulls had served their purpose, they would be reburied, sometimes alone and sometimes in groups. Often we find them buried in groups of three, separated by age and sex. Sometimes we find three female skulls together or three children together, something like that. Later in the pre-Pottery Neolithic B, that is in the 7000s BCE, we see plaster statues appear in Palestine. Some of them are two-thirds as tall as an adult person, so pretty big. The decoration on these tends to be similar to earlier plastered skulls. The face is modeled in the same way. We see the same seashells for eyes and the same pinkish wash, which might represent tattoos. And as I mentioned, some of these plaster statues have six toes, for example, at Ein Gazal and Nahal Hemar, which of course corresponds to the rock art at Kilwa depicting a woman with six toes. So obviously, as I mentioned from the biblical story, Jericho is famous for its walls, but it wasn't a walled town during the late Bronze Age, which is roughly when the book of Joshua is meant to take place, to the extent that that's a coherent concept for the Hebrew Bible. But it did have walls during the early and middle Bronze Age. So charitably, the people writing the book of Joshua may have been familiar with the ruins of earlier walls and not known exactly when they fell. During the Neolithic, the first perimeter wall was about 3.6 meters tall. It enclosed an area of 2.4 hectares, which is a fairly large village for the time. The population of Jericho during this time was probably between about 400 and 900. Over time, they reinforced the wall and dug a ditch in front of it, probably because too much soil was building up on the outside. Eventually, we will see a wall 3.5 meters thick in the west, but only 1.5 meters thick in the north and the south, probably because most of the soil was piling up in the west. So that's what they needed to reinforce against. Inside the perimeter wall, we see a stone tower, which is 8.2 meters tall, or 27 feet. The walls are tapered to protect against earthquakes, so it's 9 meters in diameter at the bottom and 7 meters at the top. This is among the oldest monumental architecture in world history, depending on whether or not you count Gebekli Tepe. This tower seems to have been built around 8000 BCE, during the early PPNB. Inside, we see a staircase leading to the top. The stairs themselves are 22 dressed slabs of stone, and the stairs appear to have been part of the construction process. In other words, they would have built them as they went upwards. So it's not only a permanent feature of the building, but it's kind of an internal scaffold. This is much more labor-intensive than just making a ladder. Lots of Neolithic houses seem to have been entered by ladder, for example, at Chachal Haryuk. And the slope of the stairs is 60 degrees, which is extremely steep, twice as steep as most modern stairs. This tower would have weighed 1,000 tons, or as much as seven blue whales, or 200 male African bush elephants. It was so heavy that it compressed the bedrock underneath it. So the bedrock shifted, which damaged the tower, and it had to be repaired. The wall is older than the tower. For the bottom half meter, there are two separate structures, but above this, they're built as part of the same structure. They're both made of the same type of undressed stone blocks. And the tower stands an extra 4.4 meters over the top of the wall. We see a destruction layer inside the tower, including 12 human skeletons that were crushed. This might have been from an earthquake, as I mentioned. Might have also been from violence, you know, warfare. 
Which brings us to the question, both the wall and the tower represent a massive labor investment. The wall alone would have taken 100 men, 104 days to build. And of course, that's a huge amount of labor that you could be spending on agriculture or whatever. So why? The most common interpretation is that this is a Neolithic version of later fortified towns. You know, the wall is to protect against enemies and the tower is to see them coming. But if that's the case, why is the tower on the inside of the wall? Fortification towers are usually on the outside, so you can see what's going on and shoot people climbing the wall and so on. And also, why are there no other fortified towns in the Near East until about 6300 BCE, as we'll talk about in episode 6? You know, we don't see any other destruction layers. Presumably other towns would be equally vulnerable to invaders, you know. Also looking at mortality, compared to the Natufian period, men don't appear to die earlier during the pre-Pottery Neolithic. So in other words, if the pre-Pottery Neolithic were more violent than the Natufian period, then a lot of men would be dying in the 20s and 30s from warfare. But in fact, what we see during the pre-Pottery Neolithic is that men's lives get longer while women's lives get shorter. This is true across the entire Neolithic. So one suggestion is that these walls, instead of being used for warfare, were used for water management. So a 1986 article by Ofer Bar Yosef suggests that instead of getting destroyed, sediments in this area just get covered in alluvium. So over time, sediment builds up. Unless you're actively building new buildings, it's going to eventually just cover your village in dirt and you'll have to move elsewhere or rebuild. So this may be why they dug a ditch outside the wall at Jericho to allow room for alluvial soil building up from the spring. Remember, Jericho is founded on what used to be a lake bed, and two wadis flow into the general area. So it's built at a relative low elevation with water that flows towards it from higher elevation, which again, is going to bury you in dirt unless you have something to fight against that. Also, charcoal remains indicate that they were burning a lot of local trees, including tamarisk, poplar, willow, oak, and fig. Obviously, when you destroy trees, you loosen the soil that their roots were keeping in place, and all that soil is going to flow downstream towards Jericho, which again is at a lower elevation than the sources of water around it. And it's worth noting that the earlier wall at Jericho was eventually completely eroded by water. One interesting paper I found is written by Ron Barkai and Roy Laran in 2008. So I mentioned the stairs going up the tower. So those stairs point in a straight line, and that straight line points directly at the nearby mountain, which I mentioned, Jebel Kurantul, or the Mount of Temptation. At the top of the stairs, you're facing that mountain. You know, we don't have any evidence of similar towers built before this, but of course people would have recognized what mountains were. And I probably didn't escape them that the stone steps of this tower pointed straight towards the mountain. On the summer solstice, the sun would set at the azimuth of 293 degrees at Jericho, whereas the axis created by the stair in the mountain points towards an azimuth of 290 degrees. So that three degree discrepancy is less than 1%, which is expected for prehistoric geometry. So in other words, the place on the horizon where the sun sets on the summer solstice is also the Mount of Temptation, is also the thing that the stairs in the tower are pointing towards. You know, who knows exactly what that means, but it probably means something. Oh, uh, why don't we have solstice architecture anymore? That is a very good question. <laughs> because, like, that's so cool. Yep. And one last thing, I mentioned earthquakes. So Jericho is on a fault line. That fault line is called the Dead Sea Transform. It's a thousand kilometers long, where the Arabian plate pushes against the African plate. So we have one grave, someone who was already a skeleton when the earthquake hit. The fault line separated their skull from the rest of their body. So unlike all the intentional skull removals, this one appears to be an accident. And we have three earthquakes documented during the early Neolithic. The last one marked the end of the pre-pottery Neolithic B at Jericho. This may be because it disrupted the flow of the spring. And of course, the site would be uninhabitable without the constant source of fresh water. So we do see the site abandoned for a while at the end of the pre-pottery Neolithic B. And that's pre-pottery Neolithic Palestine. So I mentioned Jesus getting tempted by Satan in the desert. This is from the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4. Again, the King James Version. Do you want to be Jesus or Satan? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this is a cursed Buzzfeed quiz. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, 
he was afterward and hungered. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. For the record, the Old Testament quote that he's quoting there doesn't say, don't do magic. Huh. Don't try to outfront Satan. Just say no. Yeah. And like, I, you know, I'm sure there's some law in Leviticus. It's like, don't do magic. But Jesus did magic all the time. That's a good point. Jesus was like the magic guy. I yeah. mean, then all. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him up on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. It is written again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. So here's the point of including this bit. At this point in the narrative, Jesus just got baptized in the Jordan. Traditionally, this happened at a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan, which is right across the Jordan River from Jericho. Oh, this is the story of John the Baptist, right? Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain, and sheweth him all the kingdoms of the world, and the glory of them, and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. I'm at my wits' end with this guy. <laughs> <laughs>